This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kingsbury, retired Fleet Mass Chief and Co-Director of Outreach for the U.S. Naval Institute. Now it's my pleasure, and it's been probably a year since I had him to have on his guests, uh, Force Mass Chief James Osborne and Force Mass Chief Kevin Goodrich, the two Surface Force Force Mass Chiefs. Guys, welcome back. It was a year, but I enjoyed the conversation last time. I'm looking forward to an update on what's going on. How are things with you, James? Hey, good morning, Paul. I, I wanted to thank you and USNI for allowing us... Uh, to be back on with you and then give a shout out to my esteemed colleague, mentor, friend, uh, and that of uh, Kevin Goodrich. Of course, Kevin Goodrich out there on the surface side. So, Kevin, what you got to say, my friend? Hey, uh, a year has gone by really quickly. Uh, not very easily, but really quickly. And it's been too long. And uh, glad to be back in touch with you, Paul. And uh, always fun to share a microphone with my friend, James. Sounds good. And like you said, uh, Kevin, a lot has been going on. I mean, a lot has changed since we talked last time. I don't think we would have ever envisioned the adjustments we'd had. So, James, could you give us an update on uh, COVID, basically how it's impacted man train equipped processes and the morale across the surface fleet and what adjustments you've had to make or be involved with as you've navigated this last year? You bet, Paul. Uh, COVID has absolutely impacted the very charter of what we do as a tight commander in the man train and equip of our our ships to, to get them to sea. Some of our areas were slowed, and, and in some instances, we actually paused because as the nation and our country and the world had to take a pause and understand what we were up against when the, the initial phases of COVID, uh, that the pipeline of some of those schools, just the, the throughput that we were having, did cause a bit of a pause for us to make sure we could do what you said towards the backside of that is mitigate the, the, the COVID uh, impacts. I would say that from the training, our training also slowed and in some instances paused. And we got very, very adaptive in some of those mitigations. One very specific one that is an absolute success is the ATG afloat concept that we had to create. So what we did is we took float training team uh, and we put them out and embarked them on board uh, our ships. And then they went on and spent several weeks with them. So the ATG would get tested in, tested out, just like the, the shipboard uh, sailors were. Okay. And from that, we had a very, very close, in-depth training process that we didn't have to take pauses in the training. It was it was in your in your face, real-time training and assessing at sea, which uh, was was a huge success. From the equip side. Globally, our commerce was affected, and that affected everything from parts allocations to our spares to our supplies. I would also say that it, uh, it affected our ships uh, in the fact that, you know, the ship building, the ship repair uh, in the shipyards were affected. And, and same thing for there from a material perspective. And even when there was some COVID outbreaks in the shipyards, that even slowed some of the uh, repair and building uh, aspects that took place. 
in all, we have absolutely learned. Uh, we continue to mitigate uh, the COVID risks, and we continue to force generate a more lethal and resilient sailor on board those combat-ready ships that we are ready to put forward to those fleet commanders to fight and to win. Okay. Kevin? Uh, so the only thing I would add to that is the very bureaucracy we tend to get frustrated with. You know, the Navy is a big organization with lots of talent and lots of uh, little subcultures and subfunctions, and and it sometimes we get frustrated at, at the pace that things move. Uh, but but when that organization is absolutely at its best is when it's responding to something huge uh, that's outside of the Navy beyond its control, such as this pandemic. You know, James stated early on the accession pipeline trickled and slowed, and that was for the MPT&E enterprise to figure out, you know, a safe way to continue to recruit and assess and, and train sailors uh, and then push them out to the fleet. And they had to figure every part of that out, uh, all the way, you know, through the travel and how you do bubble to bubble. At the same time that science was developing about, you know, what COVID means and where the risks are, I'll tell you, I still stand in awe at how quickly we adapted uh, to this threat. It seems like we've been doing COVID for 10 years. Uh, that's not a flattering way to say it, just because it requires so much effort. But if you look at our ability to generate forces, they were impacted slightly, but we were able to find quick mitigations and find other ways to deliver uh, the types of things we can deliver to generate force. And we never missed a lick. Uh, now, it is causing a fair amount of stress on the force. I, I'd be you know, remiss if I didn't admit that. Uh, so, you know, the sailor that has to walk around with an N95 mask uh, on her face all day long definitely feels the impact of this probably uh, more than, than anyone else that doesn't have to wear that mask. But, you know, those mitigations work when they're employed correctly, and we figured out the cleaning routines and the mitigations that, that we can employ to keep you know, infections from affecting the whole ship. And it's just been incredible as all those lessons learned are fed back into the system and we apply them going forward. Each time we have to generate generate readiness, we take everything we know and we apply it forward. And it's it's really uh, refined a process that, that I think anybody would look at and go, wow, that's pretty solid. And uh, you wouldn't have thought it would have it would have happened so quickly or so deliberately. So I'm encouraged by what I've seen and I'm encouraged by where we're going. So, Paul, I just wanted to anchor on one more thing with, with Kevin. You know, while we talked about the man training the quip, uh, make no mistake, we did take conscious uh, thought process into our sailors. We are very well aware uh, of the asks that we have put forward on our sailors' backs. You know, we mentioned the pre-deployment sequester time frame. That's two weeks added prior to a, a sailor leaving their family that they had to be away from their families. None of this was ever done without thought, but it was always in the understanding of that fourth generation of what we are supposed to do and providing those fleet commanders, those combatant commanders with those ready assets. And that's what we did through the course of the COVID year that we're still in. We are providing that ready asset forward to those commanders to use. Do you think the average fleet sailor gets that? Oh, do we think the average sailor gets that? I think that's a a part of a, a big comm plan that we constantly try and drive home is for the sailor to understand the connection. And the connection is their role and their mission. To that, to that ship. Okay. You know, connect the sailor to the mission. Connect the sailor to the ship. Some data is showing some of our bigger outbreaks are coming off of the the shipyards towards the tail end of the the shipyard availabilities, and that you know that's kind of a, an easy easy understanding that we're trying to rush to get through, get that ship out on time, and uh, you know we have to take a little bigger turn at 
there's COVID mitigations on board the, those vessels as they're starting to come out of the shipyard. So we don't inadvertently uh, hurt our sailors and get them COVID slimed. So, Kevin, what's been the force's response now that there's a vaccine out there? Um, what's the response and attitude you're hearing regarding the vaccine? And what's been your message to them about the vaccine? Thanks for that question, Paul. I think that what you're asking now is something that's very front and center that in fact, I spent most of the morning talking about that with my team. And we're developing some public affairs products to push forward, uh, also using all of the uh, Navy medicine product that they've pushed. That's been very helpful to us. First and foremost, we have to understand that the vaccine is under a, a Food and Drug Administration emergency use authorization. And that comes with it uh, under the current policy of uh, the DOD. And it is voluntary for each service member. So first and foremost, uh, it's important that we understand that whether or not to get a vaccine is a service member's choice, a seller's choice, or, or a Marine's choice. And we will respect that choice. I think where our part comes in is that we have to ensure that choice is informed by all the available information and evidence we have uh, so that, that when a sailor has a question or is a sailor is going through the decision matrix in his or her head about whether or not he or she should get a vaccine, those decisions are being informed by the actual evidence of what's going on. You know as well as anybody that uh, it doesn't take much time with a little bit of effort on the internet to find just about any story you want to find that'll support about any position you want to support on that story. Yeah. Uh, so it's important for us to push forth the information that's actually backed by science. And that's what we're doing now. Uh, we're highlighting the sellers that do decide to get a shot. Uh, we're highlighting them and trying to capture why they decided to get that shot. And we want to share that information back out with other sailors so that sailors are, are thinking about those things as well. However, I've got to double down with the, this is sailor's choice. And whether or not they get the vaccine or defer, we will respect that choice. It's theirs to make. Our role is to explain and educate. Okay. I'll jump back to Kevin on this one. So one of the processes that was impacted by COVID this year was uh, advancement cycles and then also the selection and initiation season for all the new chief petty officers. So how is CPO initiation season going on this year and what adjustments have had to be made? Uh, well, you know, you, you alluded to it right up front. Everything is different this year. Uh, we're doing initiation in the middle of winter. Uh, and this is something that we have not done uh, as far as I know ever before but definitely not in my 20 years as a chief. Uh, James has five years on me, and I don't think he's ever seen it either. So, yeah, the initiation season has been incredibly impacted because all of the, the lessons and knowledge that we impart, we have tried and true methods that we've been passing on and we've been using for, you know, cycle after cycle that we can't use anymore. For instance, organized PT, banned by NAV admin for COVID mitigation. So that's something that we used to use as a team building event. There was a lot of lessons to impart during that process so yeah. that we have to find other ways to deliver now. And just as you would expect, the chief mess has stepped up and found creative ways to, to get after the same things and to teach those lessons just as any, any of us would have learned. I made a chief the year before 9-11 and, and the, my first season was the 9-11 season. And, and to watch, you know, how we adjust to that, you could argue that I started my chief's season with two radically different approaches right out of the gate. And we've continued to evolve all the way up through now. I think it is impacted, but I don't think it has any way diminished the value of the process or will diminish in any way the result that we're going to get. So what's your advice that, because uh, I know I've been invited and I've done several you know, virtual uh, Zoom meetings or you know, Microsoft Teams meetings with them. So that shows one area of flexibility where the 
messes overcome and use these tools. You know, I get the opportunity and I really enjoy that opportunity to provide experience and advice, build upon the content that's in the Chief Petty Officer's Guide and stuff like that. But when you talk to them, what's your advice to new chief selects? My advice is to continue to engage the process and try to find ways to ask questions about things that, that you're concerned about because everybody is sort of learning at the same time. You know, the, the chief's message is trying a new process at the same time the selectees are going through what they know is a very new process. Right. So you just have to be ears open. You have to pay attention to what's going on. You have to try to see sort of beyond what is going on in that particular moment to try to understand the purpose of the event that's happening. Uh, and then if you feel that you don't understand all the things you should be getting out of that, I would recommend that you ask your chief's mess a question, and they will gladly answer what you were supposed to get out of each event. It's a challenge for all of us. I spent a couple hours with uh, with the surf plant selectees and small groups, uh, and I'm sure James will talk a little bit more. We had to make some adjustments early on in the season uh, to ensure we were using proper COVID mitigation throughout the surface force. Uh, so we mandated that you can't have a group size of more than four in a training event. Okay. So I spent some time with, with our selectees and groups in an auditorium uh, that allowed us to be able to mitigate COVID, but still let me talk to all of them at once. You know, it was the same couple of hours I would have spent with any selectee, and the questions I was getting were the same questions I would have got in any of my previous 19 years. You know, they're, they're the, still the same first-class petty officers that are on the cusp of taking on a whole new role and responsibility. They still have all of those questions about how to execute those roles and responsibilities, and we still know how to answer those questions. So at the end of the day, they're getting the information they need. It might not be packaged in a way that's familiar to us, but to them, it's the best initiation season they've ever gone through. So, James, for you, on the other hand, it's great to congratulate and welcome new chief selection in the mess, but then there's that bigger group that wasn't selected. So what's your advice to those who weren't selected or those who are going to be up for advancement to chief next year? I do want to submit one thing on the on the other side of that coin. Okay. Um, for, for all the years we both Kevin and I have been in the chief's mess, I, I have found I have yet to find one chief petty officer on that following Monday morning after they pen on that Friday that uh, they showed up at the front door of the chief's mess and uh, were all it was to be that chief petty officer. Uh, and I think that's the key in understanding is they are now going to begin that journey and the learning, the experiences and the failing as we all have done. And yet that's the power of the chief's mess, that we're going to provide that guidance, continue to train, continue, continue to mentor and to continue to help each other out in the long game. And then they're going to gain those experience along the way. So they will be that experienced chief petty officer. And I also submit the process while, uh, you know, we think it has changed over the years. It absolutely has changed over the years. You know, the selection board process is a little more rigor, uh, based off of the collusion that happened in 2017. So we are still selecting the best. The evaluations say that the uh, written exam says that. And then they, a very senior board of now officer and senior enlisted are selecting, uh, our future chief petty officers. So I'm excited about the future for our Navy and the Chiefs Petty Officers Mass and where we're headed. You know, for those that were not selected this year, you know, it's always a gut check uh, when you're a performer and you get told no. Uh, any any leader, any any individual that uh, aspires to, to get to that next level, you know, that first no is an absolute gut check. But for those upcoming first-class Petty Officers that are looking to get their name on the list uh, in the coming years, I would offer dig deep in that enlisted career path. 
You know, we talk very clearly. There's three documents that go in front of a selection board, precept, convening order. And Paul, the, the key document out of those three documents that I really want to have a few minutes to speak on is the enlisted career path. You know, our, our sailors are always trying to see what we need to do to advance. The enlisted career path is we're shaping those sailors to, to be back and being those rated SMEs, those subject matter experts. And that's what that enlisted career path does for most of your ratings. Uh, and that's through the, the enlisted community managers and the webpage. Every rating has enlisted career path. And uh, if you remember uh, the day of old under the NKO, it used to be called the uh, Learning and Developmental Roadmap. Yeah. Well, there, there was no there was no data there to support that we can we can quantify it and say, hey, this is what they did, so we can advance them to that. We pulled that in to the NPC web, uh, umbrella, and every year DCNP validates that that's an accurate enlisted career path, signs out the memo on it, and that's what the selection board uses every year. Okay. So it can't be a catch-all and saying. Well, I listened before, saw Osborne and Force Goodrich, and they said, just do my ECP and I'm going to advance. So, you know, on the left end of that, if you're a promotable 3.0 sailor, you are absolutely recommended and fully qualified to advance to the next pay grade. However, are you that EP, knocking it out of the park, best qualified first class to move to the right? Talk to your leadership, understand what your ECP is, and do you have the uh, ability more important, you have the availability to, to get those qualifications or to get those watch stations or to get the, the background uh, that's required to, to, to complete those ECPs. I'll anchor here and say, you know, the Naval Institute's recognizing this career milestone too. So uh, this month, starting actually on the 10th uh, through February 12th, we're running a promo for any chief, uh, new chief that gets a chief petty officer's guide. They get a free digital membership for a year at the U.S. Naval Institute. So that's in our recognition of that milestone and that accomplishment. Kevin, oh. and I love this because I remember still being on active duty, being involved in the first part of getting to this. Um, but there was a significant revision to the Enlisted Surface Warfare Specialist Program. Uh, so can you just give us a background, why that change happened, and then clarify or, you know, here's your opportunity to talk about uh, what it means to surface sailors today. This is the best question of the day. Jen will <laughs> agree with that, I'm sure. So you were still on active duty, Paul, and, and we were having these early discussions. Um, James and I came into our jobs about the same time. In fact, uh, the Air Force Mass Chief and the Air Land Mass Chief also came in to their jobs at the same time, and the I-4 mass chief had recently reported his job. So we all sort of got together and uh, decided the types of things that we wanted to go after while we had three years of, of these platforms. And one of the, the first things that we all agreed was a need to update were the warfare walls. The surface warfare instruction had been upgraded in a decade. Uh, so it was, it was stale. Uh, we thought it needed a new direction. And that's what sort of started the whole evolution of all of these warfare uh, programs getting updated. Was was that Genesis three years ago when we all got together in the same room? From there, we launched a working group that was uh, led by Greg Carlson over there on the PAC side, who is soon to be James's relief. Okay. And a whole bunch of mass sheets that represent sort of the diversity in our community uh, all the way out from here to Bahrain. Uh, so it was a global effort. They got together, they, they uh, went out and got feedback, and they developed a list of things that they would like to see changed and pushed up a uh, revised instruction. Uh, from there, we took it and continued to develop it and socialize it, and ultimately, it turned into the product that you see out there today, uh, which is significant revision, which focuses sailors on getting an enlisted service 
Marcus Warper pin at the right time in their career. Uh, so we believe that when you are brand new to a ship or you're unrated and you're trying to find your rating specialty to join, that's not the time to be trying to become a surface warfare specialist where you're learning journeyman concepts, uh, uh, big complex weapon systems and engineering plans. Uh, you should be focused on the proper type of training. You should be learning your job. You should be choosing a rating. You should be getting ship quals. Uh, you should be getting individual quals. And then when all of that foundation is laid and you understand what's going on, that's when you should transition into starting to work on a surface warfare specialist pin. Uh, so I'll leave it right there and I'll let James pick up the rest. So Kevin had it from the East Coast out to Bahrain, and it, w- it went further from Hawaii, where Greg was at, out into uh, into the to the Seventh Fleet AOR. We had a worldwide uh, Surface Forces Command Master Chief representation in, in this two and a half year brainchild of the of the leaders to say we got to do better. Um, what I submit to you is the the feedback. That we've received from the from the fleet from the surface forces was has been nothing more than uh, a thank you, been nothing more than positive. There is some venues out there. There's a couple of young petty officers that have their their media going on, and one individual in particular was very happy and and what he said and how he uh, conveyed to his audience that uh, leadership finally listened. Uh, is, is pushing us to be better warfighters early on in our careers so we can be better sailors. And I'll just leave that to, to that young sailor and his and his comments that you can't really say it any better than that. Yeah. Um, we need our surface Navy to be very proficient in the damage control aspect. Speaking as a prior damage control master chief, being able to fight our ship is absolutely prevalent. Uh, in, in the today's environment with our, our very close near peer competitors and leadership listened is what I would offer. And, uh, and we acted. Awesome. Yeah. Like I said, when I saw the memo come out and you guys sent me the email, I was, I was happy about it. And it was great to see you guys bring that home, um, with fleet feedback and something that resonated, uh, that directly, I think contributes to warfighting readiness. It's not just about getting checked for advancement. So, Good job to both of you. All right. So the next thing for both of you, and this is a great segue because we just talked about warfighting readiness and at the end of the day, that's what it's about. So Vice Admiral Kitchener had an article in this month's Proceedings Magazine and uh, Ward and Bill Hamlet just hosted him on the Proceedings Podcast. So that was a great episode. I listened to it a couple days ago and at one point he specifically talked about this concept of developing master technicians and master tacticians and certain enlisted ratings to help increase with warfighting readiness and lethality. So I wanted to get your thoughts or your involvement with this, I'll call it tech and tactician line of effort, and then what other things like this are going on to improve surface force warfighting readiness and capability in the enlisted force. It's, uh, it's interesting, uh, again, feedback that we get from our sailors and, and what we're trying to do to, to better our Navy and continue to move forward into the future Navy with some of our systems, specifically unmanned. Uh, we're, we're working on a pilot program. That pilot program is called Surf Max. Okay. It's uh, based off of, of a, a few ratings right now that we're going to do some digging into. And it's, it's, it's the surface maintenance experience. So that's the, uh, Surf Max is the acronym. So surface experience, surface maintenance experience to be exact. We've targeted a few rates, FC, OS, STG, GS, uh, because these are some of the ratings that are very critical and key 
to our, our ships and their weapon systems or ships and engineering systems that uh, if you have a very junior technician that comes on board to try and repair or to maintain those systems, we tend to see there there's some... some Okay, so if we look at the example, uh, you got the, an FC in the Navy onboard ship, got about 10 to 15 years of experience, absolutely hands-on with those weapon systems, uh, yet you bring in an FC2 that just graduated out of uh, the A school and all the C schools, while they're fresh out of the, the schooling, they don't really have that hands-on. So the SurfMex experience or the SurfMex uh, vision is in line with the aviation. Aviation's been doing a little bit longer for a few years, and so we're kind of taking their program and, and, and taking it to us and, and, again, piloting that with a few of our ratings. So back to this FC2, if I know that FC2 has, you know, again, 10 years of experience with uh, with these weapon systems, uh, he's coming off of shore duty, having done repair. I'm not going to want to put him on a DDG or a CG that already has experience on board. We want to get that FC2 with that experience to a platform that needs that that technician, that needs that tactician understanding what the weapon system will do uh, when it's full up and running. So the, the mindset and the vision of SurfMex is taking that fresh petty officer, getting them into the warfight and onboard a ship, getting that hands-on experience. But here's the key piece. Uh, and Admiral Kitchener mentioned it in his podcast. He actually mentioned it this morning uh, with the commanders. And his point is this. We don't have a lot of say-so uh, with where these sailors get to go. And that's the mindset of the surf mech. If we, if we target these individuals by their experience, we want to put them into that IMA capability. We want to put them into a schoolhouse to maintain that proficiency. So when they come out, they're going to go right back to the fleet being that much better. And again, we're finding them and we want to put them in the right platform that's going to be able to take that experience and continue to grow. Same thing with the, the AIC suit. Same thing with the, the STG, same thing with, with the GS. These are those experiences that you only get it by that hands-on experience in that rate on board those platforms. What we don't want to see is we understand we have taxes to pay to, to go to recruiting. We have taxes to pay that have to go to Great Lakes. But we want to have the opportunity or the ability to know that this individual is at the top of the, the kill chain when it comes to the surf mech score, and we need them to get back into the fleet. Or when we send them to shore duty, we absolutely need to target them in that CSCS, in that uh, INA capability to maintain that proficiency. So in a nutshell, that's kind of the, the deck plate version of what surf mechs and the, and the design and desire is. Got it. Yeah, it's more uh, getting into the distribution piece and dialing in on distribution. You know, I wrote an article and there was a podcast you know, a few weeks ago with uh, Fleet Master Chief O'Raw and John Cordell about manning and manpower in general. But this program sounds like it's more dialed in is, hey, once you've got that person, you know, how do I take that experience and put it best on the platform where I can use it to its full extent? Absolutely. Yeah, this is this is not the 9295 of a fit, feel, pay grade band or a specific NEC. This is grabbing that specific sailor and saying, you know, you have this surface maintenance experience and we need to maintain that and keep that in the fleet. Yeah, so I, I love these conversations that are coming out. I mean, just not just from vice admirals, but, you know, we had Petty Officer Ashley Derenbecker. She wrote an article, you know, dial a final battle problem up to 11 with her recommendations on how to make fleet training and combat more effective. We've had, you know, Petty Officer Chris Miners won essay contests on feedback into damage control efforts. And then in this month's edition, we had Lieutenant Craigie who talked about unleashing surface enlisted 
potentially as tactic instructor. So kind of great space. That's what the Naval Forum's all about is bringing new ideas in and then opening up that space for debate and uh, perhaps finding new innovative ways to approach things. Let's transition to final thoughts. I'll start with you, Kevin. What do you got to offer? What's your final message to the surface fleet? Before I give you a final, you know, I just want to throw a shout out to Ashley. Nice Spinal Tap reference there. Yes. Taking it up to 11. You know, I want to I want to add on to a little bit what James is talking about as well. Okay. If, if you look at Amex model that's going on right now, the aviation maintenance experience, uh, what they found through exhaustive research was that there was a direct correlation between aviation mishaps and readiness rates, and the amount of experience in five key ratings within the aviation maintenance world, and that when that level of experience in that particular type model series dropped below a certain amount. They could predict a rise in uh, aircraft mishaps and a drop in aircraft readiness rates. That's some pretty powerful stuff, and that really caught our attention. And that's what started driving the, the you know, mindset toward surf max. Uh, another, another point that James talked about also was the submarines do something really well that, you know, submarines do a lot of stuff really well that we could all learn from. But one of the things they do is because they're such a controlled, insulated, sort of system, their sailors take shorty where they want their sailors to take shorty. So they can stack a sailor. They can stack assignments on a sailor to, you know, to kind of force a developmental continuum. And on the surface side, we really don't have that. If you have someone that graduates a ship, they've learned their job, they've been on the ship for a little while, you know, it would benefit us to probably take that HT that just came off the ship, put that HT in an intermediate maintenance activity. We just bought all those billets back for SEMO over the last few years. You know, the old similabilities in the Marmic yep. into the regional maintenance center so that we could stand that up. And then that sailor then takes that information they gain and then they go and they apply to their next assignment if their next assignment is, is carefully chosen. The submariners do that by, in one, they incentivize that behavior by CPAY or by their sub pay. They figure out how to take, how to incentivize sailors to stay in the submarine world because they continue to receive this pay for the whole time. We don't have a mechanism that refined yet because we haven't really trying to refine which billets we want them to be in at the schoolhouse and at the marmic. We don't have those paths built. We don't know if each one of those levels can support the throughput that we needed to support. All that study has to be done. But that's exactly what James was talking about, is getting some of that logic played into assignment policy. Uh, so when, when you bring something like that from the, the aviation maintenance community and then you bring another practice in the submarine maintenance community, that has been working well on both sides for a number of years, and, and we can make it our own flavor. I think what we can do with that is uh, going to be very, very powerful. And you're spot on when you talk about distribution. You know, tools like 9295, that's a fleet commander priority that is put in place to help manage and mitigate the persistent CDD gaps that we've got uh, out there. So I've heard uh, a couple different numbers. I think I heard in a congressman's brief, I heard the number of 9,000 CDD gaps I think I heard in uh, in another brief, maybe even Vice Admiral Kitchen's brief, I think he mentioned 11,000 CDD gaps, operational gaps. Anyway, the number is way too big. And we did get an increase in VA for the DEGs, which has added to that delta. And NPC has increased the number of, of people on CDD. But I've got some other ideas about distribution. I'll talk to you about those later. But uh, this surfmax is very, very exciting because I think what it can do is is it can, in a very deliberate fashion, choose sailor by sailor, skill, by, skill set by skill set, and add the experience that that particular team needs to achieve success. 
you know, we, we saw a correlation a few years back with SPI total output power, something very easy to measure or how much energy the regular can put out. There was a direct correlation with SPI output power and the years of maintenance experience in the FC work center. And I think when you, when you look at that, you're like, wow, that's pretty impressive. And imagine if that played out as I suspect it does through a number of their ratings, what you could do with that once you understood that and you could harness it. Absolutely. All right, James, any closing thoughts or messages out to the force? Absolutely, Paul. Thank you. Again, thank you uh, to Kevin and thank you, Paul, for allowing us to spend some time with you. Uh, it's always great when you get shipmates and friends together on a conversation. I think sometimes it just goes a little bit more fluid when we're, when we're able to have that connections piece. Uh, what I would like to maybe kind of anchor and close on and, and my uh, final thoughts is, is the COVID vaccine. Be clear that, you know, my boss, Admiral Kitchener and myself, Service Forces Navy, we fully support seeing those initiative operational warp speed. That so much so that we both got our vaccination. We had our photos taken. We put it up on the web page just to show that as the senior leaders, we would not ask our sailors to do something that we would not do. We understand the stress that we put on our sailors. This is a, a means to help mitigate. You know, military leadership can absolutely play a key role in combating the misinformation and, uh, and to continue to build the trust in our sailors with, with the vaccine and understanding that we're capable to take it and then have, you know, no reservation doing that. You know, and again, uh, Kevin mentioned earlier in the podcast that it is a choice. But what we want to try and do is have uh, our sailors have the informed, educated choices uh, into the reasons of the yeses and the nos. And, you know, we also need to understand that, you know, this is just another measure to help protect. Whether I'm wearing my mask, whether I'm maintaining my six feet, whether I'm uh, disinfecting, now I also have the vaccine to take. So I just offer that to our sailors who are listening or who may hear this, that uh, the medical experts, they're out there saying what we're doing is right. Fleet leadership is as confident as well in the vaccine is safe, that the vaccine is safe. So uh, in closing, thank you to our sailors for a very, very tough year globally to our navies, to our Navy families. Our sailors are very resilient. And uh, as Vice Admiral Kitchener and I both say when we speak, our sailors of today's Navy will be very resilient on the heels of COVID and moving forward and taking our, our nation and our Navy in the direction we need to go to uh, to fight and win. All right. So I think that'll wrap it up for this episode. My guests today have been Force Master James Osborne and Kevin Goodrich. So on a side note, both of you are retiring this year. I know that. So I want to say, hey, it was a pleasure to work with both of you. I'm extremely proud of what you've done in the time we served together uh, and I've enjoyed watching the work you've done, given these challenging circumstances. Good luck on this next chapter of your life. Keep in touch and reach out to me with any questions or uh, help you need, because uh, that network of the Chiefs mess is still alive. So good luck to you guys. Thank you, Paul. Hey, thanks, Paul. And just remember, brother, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, so it was you who developed us, and uh, certainly appreciate all the investments you made. This couldn't be possible without you. So. Thank you. All right. Thanks. I appreciate that. That will wrap up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast channel. And until next time, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.